as you know, this is Fourth uh, of July uh, coming up, 243 years ago. Remember the founders? It's a document worth reading if you haven't read this in a while. Um, it not only laid out that the colonies were choosing to separate from Great Britain, from which most of them had come, of course. But they said in the document, they said when these political bonds are being dissolved, it makes sense to tell people why, what, what has gone on. And so when you read the Declaration, you list a long list of grievances of the evils of King George in the way he was ruling over as a despot over the, the colonists. So they laid out, this is the problem, these are the evils, these are the things that have constrained us. In Psalm 52, a few thousand years ago, David did something like that in which he specifically targeted one individual and their evil and that God wasn't a part of this. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to start reading from Psalm 52. We'll actually end up reading the whole psalm, but it will be in pieces this morning. And actually in the psalm, David is quite sparing in his description of the wickedness and the evil of the person that he's describing here. But we still get some taste of that. He says, well, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all day. In spite of his evil, God's love, God's goodness is continuing. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Uh, that's David's initial description of a man called Doeg. And Doeg's an Edomite. You see them up in the chart. He lives at the same time David does, about 1000 BC here. To say he's an Edomite means he's not Jewish. He's from Esau's line, not Jacob's. And for whatever reason, however it came about, he lives in Israel and he serves under King Saul. That's Doeg. Guys, in the page of the Bible, God tells the truth about us, you know, the heroes and the villains. And among the villains, this is one of the worst of the worst. But most of us have never heard of his name or certainly wouldn't remember him. But Doeg the Edomite is among the worst most callous, wicked people you'll read about in all the Bible. He's a villain, obviously. We're in the Heroes and Villains series. This is the 30th message. And you remember in the series, in highlighting heroes of faith, we're really saying, what does Christ-like faithfulness in their life look like? How do we emulate that? Christ's life is at work in us. God is making us more fully into Christ's image. We get glimpses of that in the lives of the heroes. In the villains, we see the things God doesn't want us to emulate. It's sort of the counterpoint to the point. It's this is what faithlessness looks like. And you see that in spades in the life of Doeg. God says, uh, we'll get there in a second, sorry. Proverbs 6.17 says that God hates the shedding of innocent blood. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, the sixth commandment listed there in both is, you shall not murder. And guys, the, the, the language there is specific. It's not you shall not kill. It's not against death in warfare. It's not against capital punishment. 
the word means to murder, to premeditatively take someone's life with no authority to do so. And Exodus 23, 7 says, don't kill the innocent and the righteous. And that's exactly what you'll see Doeg does. The main points for us this morning are twofold. The first I'm really not going to develop. It's just a point of application for us as we think through this. We need to make sure we're rejecting unholy attitudes. It could be anger, but it could be greed. It could be envy that leads to a murderous attitude in our hearts, whether or not we ever fill that out in action. Right? Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, murder starts in the heart with an attitude. We want to make sure we're not encouraging any attitude in us that's evil, like we'll see in Doeg's. The bigger point that you'll see throughout is this. It's to share Jesus' view of life as not only invaluable, remember we're all created in the image of God, but that, <clears throat> excuse me, but that life is worth defending. And that, in fact, as Christians and as God's people, not just under the New Covenant, but under the Old as well, God's people were always meant to speak up for those who couldn't speak up for themselves or in ways that were possible to do so to defend the otherwise defenseless. I'm going to uh, talk my way through 1 Samuel 21 and then we'll start reading at 1 Samuel 22 to get this story. But in 1 Samuel 21, uh, David has heard absolutely from Jonathan, the eldest son of King Saul, that Saul intends to kill him. And so David flees. And this conversation is taking place in the tribal area of Benjamin, not far removed from Jerusalem. And so David, with just a few men, he knows Saul's going to kill me. It's time to run. There's no going back. So he has no weapons. He has none of his military stuff Jonathan had given him. He has no provisions for life on the road. He's got to leave. So he goes not far down to the road to the little uh, town of Nob. And Nob at this time is where the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle were located. And so this is where uh, a great number of priests are located as well. So if you were going to go for a sacrifice, you were going to the city of Nob, which is just north out of Jerusalem. So David goes down there, he shows up, and Ahimelech, the high priest, the text says he trembles when he sees David because he, he feels like something's not right. It's just David, it's just a few men, he doesn't have the normal entourage he have or the normal equipment, and he comes up, what's the deal? And so David lies to him, absolutely lies to him to protect his own life and probably the life of Ahimelech as well. And he tells him, basically, on the mission from the king, it's very urgent. I had no time to collect anything. We had to run right along. And so give me whatever food you can, and if you have any weapons, give me that too. So Ahimelech tells him, this is what Ahimelech understands, David's on a mission for Saul. This would be normal, just not the normal appearance of things. And so he says, well, I've got the holy bread, and if you guys are ceremonially clean, you can have it. So he does. Jesus references this use of holy bread in the New Testament. And he says, and also the only sword I've got is Goliath's sword. And David says, that'll do. And so he takes off. So they take off with the bread and the sword. The text tells us this in verse 7 because it foreshadows what's coming. It says, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now we don't know why he's detained there. Maybe it's because they're wrangling over the sheep that he's presenting for the offerings. Don't know, but he's there and he sees what takes place. So we're going to pick this up in 1 Samuel 22. We'll read the text there. Starting at verse 6, it says, Now Saul heard that David was discovered 
And the men who were with him, so David's been seen and Saul knows he's fleeing. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand and all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, hear now people of Benjamin. Remember in those days you typically picked the tribal relatives or the people you'd grown up with to be your close entourage and so Saul's servants around him and bodyguard, they're all fellow Benjamites. Uh, Will the son of Jesse, throughout this text, the bad guys won't use David's name. They keep saying the son of Jesse. They won't dignify him or show him respect by even mentioning his name. They just identify him as the son of Jesse. So Saul says to his entourage, Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? And he says this is how his own servants had conspired. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Now if you remember earlier in their account, Jonathan his son and David had made a mutual covenant that they would always bless each other's family. They would never do harm to each other's family. And Saul has found out that his son made that covenant of peace with David. He says, none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Now that's absolutely a lie. That's a fabrication. There's no truth in that. But Saul is proclaiming it as truth. Now, in this setting, Saul's complaining to his servants. You guys aren't faithful to me. David's conspiring. My own son is helping. And so it's, it's sort of this complaint. And into that setting, Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, he doesn't have to say anything, but he does. He sees an opportunity to ingratiate himself to the king who's talking about all the rewards he gives to those who are faithful to him. And so he says... I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. He's implicating Ahimelech, Ahimelech who doesn't know anything about a conspiracy, who's just been innocently serving Saul all along. He implicates him as being part of a conspiracy against the king. Totally false, total fabrication. So verse 11, the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them come to the king. So there's no problem on their part. The king summoned us. We're, we're going. We have, our hands are clean. We have nothing to worry about. Saul said, now uh, hear, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread And a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Now, listen to Ahimelech's reply because it reflects both his wisdom and his innocence. It's both. So Ahimelech answers the king Who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son in law, and captain over your bodyguard, and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? So pause for a second. Ahimelech says, I've done for David recently what I've always done for David. He's your guy. 
And I've helped him recently the way I've always helped him. He says, um, today's not the first time I've helped him, but no, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this much or little. Regarding a conspiracy, he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. But his reply says this, he says, King Saul, David is your trusted servant, he's your captain, he's your son-in-law, and he's the one that's praised by everyone in your household. In, in a, David's your guy, and I've been helping your guy, I've been helping you. If there's conspiracy or if something's amiss, this is on you, not on me. King said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and they didn't disclose it to me. And stop here for just a second. We've had a series on authority. The priests were over the king in authority because the priests anoint the king. And they're the mediator between God and the king. And here is Saul, who's raising his fist against God and heaven by slaying God's representatives on the earth. These are the guys who offer the sacrifice for his sins. These are the guys that the nation goes to. And these are the guys that offer lambs every morning and every evening. And he is slaying God's priests and God's mediators. That's the command here. The servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. So the king turns to Doeg. He says to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. By the way, I meant to say on the front end, this lesson will sound depressing through most of it. So I just wondering, could you tell? <laughs> depressing, distressing, despairing. It's not ultimately, but we're, we're looking at the faithlessness before we get to some more positive applications. Um, before we look at Doeg specifically, uh, notice that in this uh, story, Saul's got his entourage around him. Now, we know they're there, but guys, in this story, they say nothing and they do nothing. Okay, now, positively, Saul tells them, get up and kill these priests, and they don't. And so we say, well, that's good. But the flip side is they didn't rise to defend the priests either. They didn't rise to say a word to Saul about this is not a good idea. Let's rethink this. Maybe slow down. Do you, do you really want to do this? This is one of the most heinous acts of murder in the Bible. Most of us have never heard of it or, or, or have no remembrance of it. But this is the death of the innocents. And you've got 85 men. And the guys, use your imagination a little bit. It's not guns. It's not gas. It's a sword. Some of these guys, the priests, would be in their white linens. The ephod would be over them. And you have a guy that's stabbing, hacking, and slashing with a sword. The text doesn't say anybody but Doeg does this. So what you've got is a picture of the king and all these people watch. 
as one by one, 85 people, this took a long time, for this guy to hack and slash and stab to death 85 innocents, God's priests, God's representatives, and no one says a thing, and no one does a thing. Before we get to the positive evil of Doeg, you got this whole group standing around, they don't say anything, and they don't do anything. Now, <clears throat> if you and I were there, what would we do? So put yourself back there just for a moment in their shoes. Saul's got his spear, <laughs> and he's the king. And if you've been with him, you've seen him hurl that thing before at David and at his sons. And you know, be honest, you know that if you stand up to say anything, you might be on the receiving end of that spear. That's a possibility, a distinct possibility with King Saul. But if we were there, would we stand up and do anything? I hope so. You know, I hope we would jump up. So sometimes... So, right, faithfulness is being Christ-like. Faithlessness is not being like Christ at all. God values the lives of all. God values the lives of the innocent. God hates the destruction of the innocent. And you got this whole entourage who just stand there and watch as one priest after another is slaughtered. Reprehensible. There aren't words to describe how evil, how wicked, how bad this was with people just watching just watching while the whole thing unfolds before them. James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. We don't have to act positively in evil to sin. And oftentimes our sins are sins of omission. We know we should do something. We know we should speak up. We know we should act. And we sit there silently and do nothing. That's exactly what they did. Listen to this quote from Chuck Heston. This is at the beginning of an old pro-life film called Eclipse of Reason. But he said, neutrality supports the oppressor, never the victim. So I just say, oh, I'm, I'm not part of this. I'm just a neutral party. And he says, no, you're never helping the victim. There's never a defense for that as far as your interaction or your relationship with the wicked. <clears throat> Proverbs 24, 11 and 12 is a well-known verse for pro-lifers. Verse 11 and 12 read this way, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it and will... He not repay man according to his word. God's word says, don't say when this evil's occurring before you're aware of it. Don't say, oh, we didn't know. You know, if we'd known something, we'd have spoken up, we'd have acted. He says, don't say that when this is being done in front of you. Now, guys, today, we're, we're compromised in a certain way today. you got social media, smartphones, internet, Wi-Fi, we are aware of so many things that we can do absolutely nothing about personally that you just start getting numb to the evil that's going on in the world around you. You know, so if we're talking about Assad in Syria or Putin in Russia or, or North Korea, you and I, are we don't have the political anything, right, the, the money or whatever, probably to have an effect on places like that. But the question for us is, just as it was, 
for the guys in Saul's entourage that day. What's going on before us? What's going on in our backyard? Who are the innocents in our midst? Who are the defenseless in our midst that God expects us to be a voice for? Or in some ways that may be possible, a defender of in ways they weren't. A few things come readily to my mind and most of these won't surprise you, I'm sure. Unborn children. You know, there's a ton of stuff. By the way, you know, Kansas Supreme Court, uh, we were the abortion capital of the nation for years, and we may prove to be an abortion capital of the nation again because it's a constitutional right for abortion in Kansas again, totally apart from anything the Supreme Court does. I have no idea where this is going. But abortion is one of those things that we can do something about in all kinds of ways. You can give and volunteer to the caring pregnancy option right here in Topeka. How many, by the way, have given or served there? Because I know we've had volunteers there in the past. Yeah. The church supports them monthly. Pro-life license plates were introduced in announcements here just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, adoption and foster care. Um, I taught, this is several years ago, I was teaching through the Ten Words, and I taught on the Sixth Commandment, don't murder. And in the context of that, I said... Don't vote for politicians who vote for abortion. <clears throat> and by the way, you might say the best option is a less pro-abortion person than a more pro-abortion person in a certain race. That might be a possibility. But basically, don't vote for those who think killing unborn children is okay. Oh, I had somebody in the church that came up to me later, and they were very respectful, which I appreciated, but they were offended by what I'd said. And they knew a lot of the politicians in Kansas, and they said... I know that a lot of those folks that vote pro-life, they're really hypocrites, and they only vote pro-life to get reelected. And I know a lot of pro-abortion, that term wasn't used, uh, politicians who are honest as the day is long. And I thought, well, I'll vote for a hypocritical person that supports life happily versus an honest person that thinks killing unborn children is okay. I'm good with that. I have no problem with that. That's a big one. We'll come back to that in a bit, in a minute. And that's why I said abortion is a is a bloody bloody cause. Obviously, persecuted Christians. Uh, it's hard for us to do things internationally where persecution is loss of liberty, life, and limb. That's not going on here yet. Though you know, uh, persecution here is starting on the legal front, where Christians are mandated. You're not just going to be okay with homosexuality or gay or lesbian causes, you're going to revel in it. You're going to bake their cakes. You're going to put their advertising up, etc. Guys, this is where we're heading. Persecution has started here. It's legal and judicial, and it's going to get worse, I'm sure, because the world is winding down, not up. But related to that, a Voice of the Martyrs, headquartered just south of us in Oklahoma, uh, we support them as a church have for years. That's an agency that supports persecuted Christians around the world and their families. They've done a stand-up job, uh, Gospel Frasia, what was Brother Andrew's group? I'm forgetting now. There's numbers of agencies that have been the hands of the church to Christians in areas where real persecution is taking place. We can support those folks. Um, Operation Christmas Box, I believe, no, that's not associated with them, sorry. Anyway, there's things we can do uh, trafficked human beings. That's going on right here in Topeka as well. 
Uh, the Peak Rescue Mission has an arm that specifically tries to make contact with uh, primarily women, obviously, uh, occasionally young, young men and boys as well, who are being trafficked into PICA. The Rescue Mission is part of that. We give them the Rescue Mission to you. You can volunteer at the Rescue Mission. Um, some of you could even volunteer in that specific category. This strikes me too. Um, you know, if Americans didn't want to use illegal drugs, you know most of the murders in Mexico, Central America, and South America wouldn't occur if Americans weren't using illegal drugs because there'd be no black market. There'd be no cartels. Guys, there'd be no trafficking if Americans weren't buying prostitution. There'd be no trafficking because there'd be no demand. So on the front end, at least, let's make sure we're not actively part of the problem. But also positively, we can support, at least financially and in prayer, folks that are otherwise defenseless, the innocent lives who are at risk. Um, how many of you remember Asia Bibi? Do you remember her by name? Yeah, several. This church, many of them prayed for Asia Bibi for almost 10 years. And she and her family, she was under a death sentence in Pakistan, and they're safely ensconced in Canada today. But guys, there's our, there are tons and tons of Christians that God loves no less than you and me. You'll never hear of them. The West doesn't know about them. We don't know about them. We're not praying for them. And they're, they're losing life, liberty, and limb in places like China and Iran and Pakistan and Afghanistan and North Korea. Uh, there's persecution going on. The innocents are being slaughtered all over the world. There's no greater time in history in which more people have been martyred, Christians, for their faith than now, that's going on right now. So we can't say we don't know about anything. For us, though, the issue really is, Lord, where do I participate? Where am I called to be a voice for the voiceless, a defender of the defenseless? That's the only question, not if, but which ones? What ways do I participate in that? That group, Saul's entourage, allowed Doeg's wicked murder to occur with no defense whatsoever. Now, the Doeg himself, back at verses 18 and 19, 1 Samuel 22, Doeg the Edomite turned, struck down the priests, killed that day 85 persons, and then went to the city of Nob, their, their city, put to the sword, man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, sheep, he put to the sword. Now, uh, put this in perspective again for a minute. King Saul is losing his mind. He is spiritually alienated from God, and he's losing his grasp on sanity almost entirely. Remember, the Holy Spirit was, was withdrawn from him. An evil spirit is tormenting him, and he's literally losing sanity. And so this insane guy says, kill all these people. So Saul's defense, if we would call it that, is he's lost his mind. He's spiritually tormented. He's losing his faculties of reason, rationality. Doeg doesn't have that excuse. Doeg has just heard Saul say, I reward those who faithfully serve me. And Doeg's just been the chief sheep herder. And, you know, I'm sure what's going on through his mind is, I'd like some of that. A bigger estate, a, a, a higher place at Saul's table, a little bit more wealth, a little bit more social standing. Saul's out of his mind, but Doeg isn't. Doeg is murder for hire. 
Doeg is, I can get something I want, and I'm willing to do anything to get it. It's murder for hire, no less than that. It's interesting, too. You know, Scripture, God's clear about this. You remember when God told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites? You know, in Scripture, it would be called being put under the ban, just like the city of Jericho was. God says, whether it makes sense to you and I or not, we've talked about this in the past, everything that breathes, you're to slay. Okay, the Amalekites. That's what Saul was told to do. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. But Doeg not only does what Saul said, he kills the priests, but his enthusiasm to ingratiate himself and show Saul how much he's on his side, he then marches down the road to the city of the priests and he slays every one of their family members, save one, one escaped. That guy goes with David. He slays everyone, man, woman, boy, children, doesn't matter. All the livestock, they're all... He was more enthusiastic and faithful to wickedness than Saul had been to God. And that's often what you'll see, because there was something in it for him. Think about this for just a minute. When we think of World War II and concentration camps, death camps, etc., we're usually thinking just of death and murder. And, and we say... You know, uh, Hitler put the Jews and the gypsies and the Christians and the Poles to death. It's all about murder. It's about death. But guys, that's only half the story. If you've seen the movies, The Monuments Men or The Woman in Gold, this was murder for hire. Because what were the Nazis doing? When they displaced those Jews, they went into their house and they took all their wealth. And you see that in spades in the movie The Monuments Men, which is a true story. The Nazis wanted the stuff. They were willing to kill all those people to rob them. World War II, as far as the death camps at one level, was no more than robbery and theft written large and accommodated by murder. And that's what Doeg is doing. I'm going to get the stuff and I'll do so by killing the innocent. And that's the same thing that was going on in World War II in Europe. In fact, guys, lots of that wealth it's, it's still in Austria and Switzerland today. I don't know if you remember newspaper accounts from 10 or 20 years ago. One of those nations paid $8 billion to a Jewish group to be disseminated through the Jews who, who were descendants of the Holocaust. That was a pittance. That was a pittance. That, that stuff was, it was murder for hire in Europe. And the death-dealing spirit of Doeg, inspired by the love of money, and love of power, that's still going on today. And I'm just using these as examples because these aren't the sum or the total or the extent to which this is going on, but these are easy to identify. And I think they're arenas in which you and I actually have things we can do. But example of death of the innocence for money, and I'd say this uh, before we get started, <clears throat> Exodus 21 in God's economy, in God's eyes, in the, in the one who made us, he equates the life of the unborn with an adult person. So in that account, if two men struggle and fight and a pregnant woman is there and there's harm, what we call the law of lex talionis or the law of retaliation or retribution says you can't do more than take an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, etc., 
You might say, well, infants in the womb have no teeth. But the point is, the story is about a pregnant woman. If there's harm to the baby in her womb or to her, the assailant was penalized. The unborn child was treated no differently than the adult mother. That'd be a point to be, to be made. Planned Parenthood. And I don't know if you can read this on the second line under annual report. This is their annual report, their most recent. Uh, they're creating the healthiest generation ever. Um, unless you're in the womb. They're creating the healthiest generation ever. Forgive my sarcasm. It's hard to, it's hard to keep down. These are stats. These are recent stats. This is current on the Planned Parenthood. $2 billion in assets. Their last calendar year, they received over $500 million in government subsidies, over $630 million in private subsidy. They did over a billion dollars in business last year, 245 million of which, if you're a regular business, would be called profit. So if you took away the government subsidy, they wouldn't be making a profit, which means from your taxes and mine, the agency that kills unborn children is making a profit. They're a 501c3 not-for-profit. They did, and by the way, their rate of providing abortions is increasing, it's not diminishing. They provide about a third of abortions in the United States. Two calendar years back, they did over 320,000. Last calendar year, they did over 330,000. And at about $600 a piece for a 10-minute procedure, they brought in about $200 million from abortion services. But it's not about the money. It's about creating the healthiest generation ever. By the way, services that are not abortion-related, they're dropping, and abortion services are rising under Planned Parenthood. So there's money to be made, guys, in killing the innocents, in killing the unborn right here in the United States. This is our backyard, and, and, and I am in no way singling out the United States as unique in this. Guys, this isn't just us. The spirit of death is at work in the world today, and it's getting worse. It's not just here. It's everywhere. Let me give you another example of death, for, death of the innocents for political power. This is the 2016 uh, National Democratic Party's platform. This is what they wanted. This is what they said were characterized by the last presidential election. We believe unequivocally, like the majority of Americans, that every woman should have access to quality reproductive health care services, including safe and legal abortion, regardless of where she lives, how much money she makes, or how she's insured. And those last two really mean the government, we're going to provide the, fund, the financing for those abortions also. It, that Plank also provided to overturn the Helms and Hyde amendments, which restricted federal funds for abortion provision, as well as uh, working against defunding Planned Parenthood. By the way, I have uh, website addresses for all of these if you care to look any of these up. A week ago, presidential Democratic candidate Beto O'Rourke interviewed with George Stephanopoulos on ABC this week. George says, Beto, is there any room in the Democratic Party for those who oppose abortion? O'Rourke says this, it's very hard for me to believe that we could ever produce a nominee who would not believe in a woman's right to choose and the ability to stand, and listen to his language, the ability to stand and the mandate for us to stand with women 
in each and every instance of abortion. We're mandated, he said, to support, to get behind every death of every unborn child in this country. He goes on to say a core value not only of the Democratic Party, but of the United States. That's abortion. Did you know it was a core value of the United States of America? I'm just saying this is an example that there's political power to be gained through the death of the innocents. Guys, it's the same thing. Same thing's going on today. Uh, it gets worse before it gets better, sorry. We will, we will end on the high point, I promise. 1 John 5 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we want to remember, big picture, we want to put this in perspective. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world you and I live in lies in the power of Satan, the evil one. And Jesus says in John 8 that he's a murderer. Satan dispenses a spirit of murder. Is it any wonder that murder, that a death-loving culture gets to love death more and more if it lies under his power and his influence? That makes sense to me. And guys, I think it's going to get far, far worse before it gets better. And that's, and that's, let me just throw this out very briefly. My reading of the Bible is that Jesus comes to save us from ourselves, that we don't make the world better. And then Jesus says, you've done such a lovely job. I'm ready to come back. <laughs> Will he find faith when he returns to the earth? No, he won't. Read Matthew 24, read Matthew 25. The second coming of Jesus is to put down all rebellion and that whole spirit of death. And you get to the millennial reign of Jesus, Jesus on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Isaiah 25 says, death takes a holiday. For a thousand years, death sort of dies. And, and people who died a hundred years old, that's the exception. And God judges those who harm others. But otherwise, people aren't dying. They'll wear out the work of their hand. They'll live a thousand years because Jesus is reigning. Because the prince of life is here. But guys, until that happens, this world is going down, not up. That's how I read my Bible. So our hope ultimately, short term, it's to do what we can. It's to be a voice for the voiceless, defense for the defenseless in the ways we can. But never with the thought that you and I are saving the world or the church is saving the world. This is not happening. Jesus saves the world. Jesus saves us. And it's only when Jesus brings in his millennial kingdom that death takes a holiday. And it's only when his eternal kingdom is ushered in that death, John Dunn's famous words, death dies. 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 20. Death is consigned to the second death, the lake of fire. But until then, we live in a world and a culture and a time in which the love of death just keeps getting more and more profound and people wouldn't tell you, they think it's all good, but, but death for now wins. Death only wins for a season, though. Listen to this, uh, Psalm 20, uh, 52, verses 5 through 7. This is David's perspective next of Doeg and what's going on there. And, of course, it speaks beyond that particular. He says, God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Scripture doesn't record Doeg's death, but David knows God is taking you down. God is taking you out. The righteous will see and fear, and God will laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, 
but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Not understanding when Doeg's destroying the lives of the innocent, he's destroying himself. That's what David says. That's what came for Doeg. Now guys, for us, we need to remember with, with all this depressing, distressing news that could make us have the sense of despair, Jesus conquered sin and death in his life, death, and resurrection. This is not a problem. Death for us is a temporary inconvenience, right? And eternity is what matters. So we want to remember we are called to Christ-like faithfulness now in the limited but significant ways we can be involved. But our hope is not on what we can accomplish here now. Our hope, in fact, 1 Peter says, set your hope entirely on the coming of Jesus back to save the world. Jesus is the only one that puts death to death. You know, everything we do is provisional for now. It's significant. It's meaningful. We're called to it. The church is called to be Christ in our time and in our place. But ultimately, it's only Jesus that's going to put death to death and bring an end to this. So with that, closing applications, we want to remind ourselves the best thing we can do is share and live the gospel. Guys, if you converted someone from a pro-death to a pro-life position, that'd be a good day. But if they don't know Christ, they're going to hell forever. The, the, the message of peace and reconciliation we have is first and foremost, you need to have your sins forgiven and you need to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus, your innocent sin bearer. That's the primary message. We should never lose sight of that. Everything else is after that. That's the mandate of the church, is to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. So we want to make sure we're doing that. And we don't want to lose hope and say, that pro-death, pro-abortionist will never come to faith. You and I have no idea who God will call to himself. What do you think the early church, when Saul of Tarsus, the murderous, raging Saul of Tarsus, they hear he's a Christian. You remember early on, they're like, no way. You know, God can say who he wants, but they're usually nice people like me. They're not like him. And no, Saul of Tarsus, wow, Paul the Apostle, the Apostle of God to the Gentiles like you and me. That's what God does, right? New birth is new birth, you know. It's a new person. It's a new creation. That's what God is up to. So we definitely want well, to be praying. Pray for folks who've had abortions, for instance. Pray for those who've given abortions. You don't know. I don't know what God's up to. But first and foremost, we want to be praying for them, sharing the gospel. We want to speaking for those God's made us aware of. We want to be voting for those who say we are for life. We're not for death. We're for life. And we're going to be more and more a minority, guys. That's Mike's prediction as time goes on here. We need to support candidates who will stand up for the defenseless. We need to remember, John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Even if you die, if you're mine, even if you die, you live. And that's the message we need to encourage ourselves with, and it's the message we need to share with others as well. The God we love and serve is the God of life. And to come in relationship with him, that is to gain life. And that's what we have to offer the world. Speak up for the defenseless, but tell them about the Lord of life. 
1 Corinthians 15. I'll let you read that later. It's on the bottom of your study sheet. However, however demoralizing the scene may appear otherwise, God says keep working and be faithful and trust that he'll make that thing right in the end. And that's what we need to do. Well, stand with me if you would. And let's read the conclusion of Psalm 52. This is where David wound down. This was his conclusion. Thinking about the death of the innocents. Read with me. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly.